Hello, and welcome to There and Back Again, a seminar of J.R.R. Tolkien's Legendarium. I am your host, Elisha Sir Lewis. I want to begin with my journey of discovering Tolkien. Well, my journey started when my father read Me and My Sister the Hobbit. From a very young age then on, I was searching with no avail for a similar experience. The closest I ever got to was The Legends of King Arthur and of the Knights of the Round Table. To these regards, there was a bigger hurdle. I detested reading. I wanted nothing to do with any form of reading, save a few, such as picture books of Arthurian legends and all-around fantasy. However, these were tolerable, only that I never finished them. I can remember 10-year-old me begging my dad to let me watch The Fellowship of the Ring. And on one night, when it was just us, my dad, quote, Watching movies at night always makes it better. As I watched in the dark, as Galadriel spoke of the prophecy, and as the elves sang in Tangwar, a sensation of fear enveloped me and never left. The film went from dark to light, then to dark. By the time Arwen and Frodo were fleeing from the Black Riders, I, gathering courage of my own, flicked on the lights and woke up my dad saying I was done. <laughs> Sleep, as you can imagine, eluded me and was replaced with Gollum's torturous cries. Eventually, me and my sister did finish the trilogy, and to this day, it will remain timeless and hold a special place as one of my favorite movie series. In 2012, that experience was begun again with the Hobbit movies. When the Hobbit franchise ended, I wanted to drive my hand at writing my own stories. In my research, I discovered J.K. Rowling. I was looking for another medium to experience a deeper passion of stories and characters. When I searched up on any related Harry Potter podcasts, as I returned from an epic family vacation to Canada. From then on, a love and desire for podcasts was sparked, then brought to full life when I took a course on J.R.R. Tolkien, discussing the movies and his essay on Beowulf and Sir Gwain and the Green Knight. Surprisingly, my mom and dad, when I started to show a strong liking to reading books, came to light here, but it started with my mom. Without her reading to me, I never would have had such a love of fantasy and stories. She herself never found fantasy genre as fascinating, but she unknowingly forged the embers, and I can never thank her enough. That's why when I sit here and talk to you about the importance of stories, in reading and language, I state my mission. Through Tolkien, my plan and my hope is that there is something of merit, worth, and meaning for all of you in this seminar. One of the primary virtues which I must pay strict adherence to is chronology. We're going to discuss these works as they unfold before us. 
if we get caught up in the later adventures of our characters, we will lose track of the here and now, which is vitally important. The sense of presence in a story is vitally important. Not just to understanding the text, not just to understanding the author, but the power of narrative itself. We are going to look at these stories and what they tell us. What these characters tell us about ourselves. What can we learn about Tolkien, Tolkien's worldview, the virtues of valor, friendship, and the greatness of small things. Let's consider two acceptable pronunciations of Tolkien. So, yes, it should be Tolkien, but Tolkien has been so widely adopted within the community that it is incredibly difficult to break that pronunciation. J.R.R. Tolkien was born on January 3rd, 1892 in South Africa. He moved back to England with his mother at the age of three when his father died in Africa at the age of 39. Tolkien witnessed the First World War, including the Battle of the Somme. After the war, he worked on the Oxford English Dictionary, then moved to Oxford, a place synonymous with the professor. While at Oxford, Tolkien formed a friendship with C.S. Lewis and helped form the Inklings. He died on September 2nd, 1973, at the age of 81. Most of you know Tolkien as the author of The Hobbit and of The Lord of the Rings, but Tolkien was also a medievalist, a philologist, a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford. We're talking about someone who understood language and mythology and about the ancient world and those epic traditions. He knew those things very, very well and is revered as a father of subcreation. It is easy, I think, to label the professor as a fantasy author, but he would have hated that dismissive tone. He would have hated the classification of his works being fantasy and that we cannot engage the same way with fantasy as we could with fiction. These works stand apart, I think, from any other works to the complexity, sophisticated and careful thought that Tolkien put into them. Nowhere else will you find other works that aspire with such ambition and depth and breadth that Tolkien's works do. Nowhere else will you find such confidence. No other stories in the English language have moved and stirred and motivated people for as long as his works have. Alright, some key points. Number one, allegory versus applicability. Number two, stories are experiences to be undergone. Number three, the problem with reductionism. Tolkien wrote extensively in the foreword to The Lord of the Rings about allegory. Allegory is a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. This was very popular and common in the medieval ages. 
characters and events in an allegory are symbolizing something else. Most especially to the professor, that the Lord of the Rings is an extended allegory of the First World War. Thopin stated, The real war does not resemble the legendary war in its processes or its conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then certainly the ring would have been seized and used against Sauron. He would not have been annihilated, but enslaved, and Baradur would not have been destroyed, but occupied. The Lord of the Rings occupies a unique place in literature, a crossroads where Tolkien's war and Middle-earth meet, but are not the same. Tolkien has this to say about allegory. I cordially dislike allegory in all of its manifestations, and have always done so since I grew old and weary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose of a nation of the author. There are two important things to pull out here. Later in the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf would say this to Saruman. He that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. This is why when we read the text, we will try to analyze the text rather than apply the common allegories. Take a look at line two. Um, if you have the token reader, I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. Tolkien's ability to contrast and to a degree deflate history and feigned is fascinating. We're going to talk about subcreation and storytelling in just a little bit when we read on fairy stories. We must take note the fundamental importance to all that Tolkien has undertaken here. The creation of a fictional history is vitally important because it still has room for applicability. Let's draw out allegory versus applicability. If allegory is the purpose domination of the author, then applicability is what we, the reader, have the ability to draw out from a source, gathering personal meaning and significance. Allegory is to the domination as applicability is to connection. Your response to the text is vitally honest, pure, and true, but it's not intended. Tolkien wanted his readers to focus on his stories, not on him. Tolkien was famously suspicious of the biographical approach to fiction. He saw the interest of his readers looking for hints from his personal life as thereby missing the point. If we start looking for clues to understanding the text, well then that's missing the point. 
It should not be our ambition to search for keys to unlock understanding. We stop seeing the story and we start looking for clues. Applicability is what we can draw from the text as an experience to be undergone. What I want us to do when we read Tolkien is not to contrive from the text the source of influences, not trying to inanimatize it. Tolkien wanted us to experience his stories on their own ground. And when we do so, we see truth. We see ourselves, our lives, and our experiences. The problem with reductionism is the simplification of these approaches is what Tolkien is objecting to here. The end result is we tend to read less carefully. We tend to think less thoughtfully of the text. Tolkien says the prime motive for writing The Lord of the Rings was the desire of a storyteller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times, simply move them. We need to look at how Tolkien understood the nature and purpose of stories. A place where Tolkien explains these things most clearly is in his essay on fairy stories. On fairy stories is an essential read for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the multivalent myth of Tolkien's legendarium. Section 1 Questions and Synopsis of Mythopoeia. The questions and agenda of Tolkien's essay. What is a fairy story? What is the origin of a fairy tale? What is the value of fairy tales? Philomythos to Mythomythos. Key points of essay. Fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. All right, without further ado, deal with a quick summary of how on fairy stories came to light. Tolkien is asked to give a lecture in 1938 at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. In the opening paragraph, he states, I have not the learning nor the still more necessary wisdom which the subject demands. And he also makes a pun there. He says, fairy is a perilous realm, and in it are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. And overbold I may be encountered. The name Tolkien means overbold, foolhardy. All right, here we go. The land of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there. Shoreless seas and stars uncounted. Beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril. Both sorrow and joy as sharp as swords. In that land a man may perhaps count himself fortunate to have wandered. But its very richness and strangeness tie the tongue of a traveler who will report them. And while he is there, it is dangerous for him to ask, 
too many questions, lest the gates be shut and the keys lost. The fairy gold too often turns to withered leaves when it is brought away. All I can ask is that you, knowing these things, will receive my withered leaves as a token of my hand at least once I held a little of the gold. Let's recall that On Fairy Stories was published after The Hobbit and before The Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien has this very well-known book that is considered to be for children. Now he wants to write an epic fantasy for adults. And On Fairy Stories is him justifying that epic fantasy can be for adults. When The Lord of the Rings was published, a big question was, who is the audience for this book? Because the tradition of epic fantasy that we have nowadays really comes from Tolkien, because it didn't exist at that time. In this essay, he has an agenda. With On Fairy Stories, he's defending fantasy and proving fairy tales aren't just for children. What is a fairy story? I said the sense, stories about fairies, was too narrow. It is too narrow, even if we reject the diminutive size. For fairy stories are not in the normal English usage stories about fairies or elves, but stories about fairy. That is fairy, the realm or state in which fairies have their being. Fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, besides dwarves, witches, trolls, giants, and dragons. It holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, the earth, and all the things that are in it. Train bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. Stories that are actually concerned primarily with fairies, that is, with the creatures that might also in modern English be called elves, are relatively rare and, as a rule, very uninteresting. Most good fairy stories are about the Avengers of Men in the Perilous Realm or upon its shadowy marshes. For the moment, I would say only this a fairy story is one which touches on our uses fairy, whatever its own main purpose may be, satire, adventure, morality, fantasy, fairy itself may perhaps most nearly be translated by magic. For Tolkien, a fairy story is one that happens in its own realm. He wants to distinguish from three other types of fairy story, the first being the traveler's scale, for example, Gulliver's Travels which has fantastical elements but not inherently fairy. The second is the dream story, for an example Alice in Wonderland, where all these fantastical things happen but our heroine wakes up to learn it was just a dream. Finally, the third is the beast fable. An example would be Aesop's fable. They have only one magical element to them in that the beasts talk, but they are symbols that teach us lessons. These three types of fairy stories are not good examples of a true fairy story in Tolkien's view. 
As for diminutive size, Tolkien describes a detestable tradition of diminutive fairies with wings and antennas. Why do we have this tradition? In England, largely a sophisticated product of literary fancy, Tolkien dislikes the diminutive and reductionism that these prominent figures of the literary fancy, these Victorian Edwardian look on the fairy story, such as Michael Drayden's Nefidia, Oberon, Maeve, and Pigwigan, may be diminutive elves or fairies, as Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot are not. But the good and evil story of Arthur's court is a fairy story rather than this tale of Oberon. What is the origin of a fairy tale? There has been a large debate upon the matter of where the origin of fairy stories come from. We have independent invention. Now, independent invention is when similar stories come from different origins or inheritance from a common ancestry. Finally, we have diffusion which is one story that is widely spread, often with textual ruins. Now, textual ruins are either things that are lost in the telling of a story or choosing between different versions of the tale. Tolkien answers these by saying stories form from all these origins, therefore ruling out one being the correct, and we just don't know how they arise. Tolkien has this metaphor of the cauldron of story. The cauldron is full of stew. The ingredients of the stew are mythology, myths, or stories about gods. Another is legends about stories of the superhuman. Folklore, which is about ordinary humans. Lastly, history. Real historical events. Every storyteller has a ladle to scoop out a serving of the stew and that's the metaphor on how stories form and where they come from. What is the value of a fairy tale? The value of a fairy tale is contrived of four elements but when made for children we lose these elements. The things we gain are fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. Children are not singularly affected by credulity. There is no notion that children will believe anything, but Tolkien proves that not all children are not just a product of literary fancy. What he is really after in this notion of what Tolkien coins the phrase secondary belief. Secondary belief is distinct from credulity. Tolkien says we are all capable of secondary belief. We need to know a little bit about Tolkien in order to understand what he is doing here. Tolkien was a devout Catholic, and he believed that the primary world was created by a higher being, a god. What Tolkien believes as a godlike act, he calls subcreation. The act of a subcreator is to create a secondary world. So, what is secondary belief? 
quote-unquote secondary belief is what he calls the interconsistency of reality. The history of fairy stories is probably more complex than the physical history of the human race and as complex as the history of human language. All three things, independent invention, inheritance, and diffusion, have evidently played their part in producing the intricate web of story. It is now beyond all the skill but that of the elves to unravel it. Of these three, invention is the most important and fundamental, and so, not surprisingly, also the most mysterious. To an inventor, that is, to a story maker, the other two must in the end lead back. Diffusion, borrowing in space. Whether an artifact or a story only refers to the problem of origin elsewhere, at the center of the supposed diffusion, there is a place where once an inventor lived. Similarly, with inheritance, borrowing in time, in this way we arrive at last only at an ancestral inventor. While if we believe that sometimes there occurred the independent striking out of similar ideas and themes or devices, we simply multiply the ancestral inventor, but do not in that way the more clearly understand his gift. To understand that stories pass from person to person, that they spread outward, to understand that stories flow through culture and time, and how stories tell a people group through language and oral tradition is vitally important. That stories bind culture, religion, and humans together is vital. Humans are storytellers. Tolkien reminds us that stories can be traced back to an inventor, to a creator, to a story maker. A phrase we all know, and I will quote Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the suspension of disbelief. Tolkien is not even fully satisfied with this valuable precursor to secondary belief, but secondary belief is more complicated. If the secondary world needs only suspension of disbelief, which is to say I'm going to believe this for now, is the wrong way to engage with a story, because suspension of disbelief is weaker than secondary belief. If the author has done his or her job and successfully created a fictional world that we live in when we are enchanted by the story, then they have created secondary belief. One of the most common criticisms of fiction, especially of fantasy, is why read something if it isn't real? I will read to you a quote from Samuel Johnson. The audience are always in their own senses. We know the elves, dwarves, and dragons aren't real. Bye.
it doesn't matter that it's make believe. In fact, we aren't being deceived or misled and certainly not being harmed by the fact that this is fiction. As long as the inner consistency is upheld and we understand the rules of the secondary world, then belief has not the disposition of credulity. For Tolkien, really, the central function of a fairy story is to address itself to the desirable, not merely the possible. When the fairy story comes to its eventual desirability, he uses the word primordial. He's basically saying these primordial desires are so ancient that they are as old as our culture and genetic makeup. They are so ancient that we really can't have humanity without desire. The desire to fly is contrasted by Tolkien almost in a rage against machines. Tolkien detested machines by and large, practically that they were projects of evil purposed power and domination. So our desire is not attainable by machines or primordial desires. In fact, exclude machines. We may, as of now, have a desire of power. Tolkien would argue that this would be the result of our fallen nature, for the most part. The things we desire that are addressed in fairy stories, our ancient desires to be able to do things or experience things without the intervention of mechanisms. A primordial human desire may be to survey the depths of time and space. That is a power that will be granted by enchantment. And as he says, grace it would be a gift given to us by a greater power than ourselves. The author would intuit the primordial desires in the execution of his project and within the fairy tale would be used to awaken desire that we didn't know we had. So he says, in fact, a fairy story will both awaken that desire and it will seek to satisfy that desire. Fairy stories give us a glimpse. It opens up out to us whether by a doorway or flying past our window or the sudden flash of light. Shakespeare describes this as is having ceased to be air, one can say its likeness. What would be the nature of such a satisfaction? 
why is the glimpse satisfactory? What it does is validate our suspicion that it existed all along. We don't always find it. We cannot control it or manipulate it. That belongs to a higher power than ourselves. When we glimpse it through fantasy, through story, we know it exists. Let me read how Tolkien embarked on his journey to fairy. I had very little desire to look for buried treasure or to fight pirates, and Treasure Island left me cool. Red Indians were better. There were bows and arrows. I had to have a wholly unsatisfied desire to shoot well with a bow, in strange languages, and glimpses of an archaic mode of life, and, above all, force in such stories. But the land of Merlin and Arthur was better than these, and best of all, the nameless north of Sigurd of the Volsungs, and the prince of all dragons. Such lands were preeminently desirable. A real taste of fairy stories was awakened by philology on the threshold of manhood and quickened to full life by war. Here we have the proof and the tenderness of the truth. He gives us his journey with the inciting incident of his experience in warfare that propelled him to the recollection that philology was stirring within him and then at last he succumbed to the fairy story and he was now enchanted. As for its legitimacy, I will say no more than to quote a brief passage from a letter I once wrote to a man who described myth and fairy story as lies though to do him justice, he was kind enough and confused enough to call fairy stories making, breathing a lie through silver. The man who described lies breathed through silver was none other than C.S. Lewis. In response to Lewis's argument, Tolkien wrote a poem entitled Mythopoeia, which dramatically changed Lewis's view on fantasy. He states that it was a pivotal experience that led to his Christian faith. C.S. Lewis was an agnostic. However, after reading Mythopoeia, Lewis converted to Christianity in 1931 on a long discussion during a late night walk along Addison's Walk with his two close friends, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. Lewis had commented at one time that as a young man in Ulster, he implicitly learned never to trust a Roman Catholic, and upon his entry into literature at Oxford, he was taught explicitly never to trust a philologist. Token, of course, was both of these. Over time, these prejudices would fall away. Tolkien would write a poem for Lewis explaining the Christian myth and how a sacrifice given long ago would and can affect us now. He called it Mythopoeia, which in Greek means 
the genesis of myth. In his dedication, Philomethus to Misumethus. Philomethus, lover of myth, to Misumethus, hater of myth. Let me read an excerpt from Mythopoeia. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. Disgrace he may be, yet it is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned, his world dominion by creative act. Not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. The wall, the crannies of the world were filled with elves and goblins, there we dared to build gods in their houses, out of dark and light, and sowed the seeds of dragons, twas our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. This is, to a degree, theologically inclined. If we break down this with the view of Tolkien's faith, I think it will help us understand his argument better. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. That is to say, that the only wise being God, that man cannot be so flawed and corrupt as to be compound of lies. If we are created by God, then we must carry truth in us. Stanza 2 Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. We are of course talking about the fall of man, and the exile out of the Garden of Eden. Um, stanza three. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. This is fascinating. What was Adam given dominion of? the creative act. Adam's job in the Garden of Eden was to name stanza four, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. The single white light, thereby the light above God, 
is refracted thereby into us as we practice the creative act. The final stanza. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. God has given us the creative act. And so we create from that white light to our own hue. Tolkien is defending fairy tales, fantasy. And he is defending the fantasy author, saying that, in fact, this kind of creation is the highest form of creation, the most potent and the most magical. Fantasy is the ability to imagine something that does not exist, and then through art, make it real to someone else. The difference between imagination and fancy is you can imagine and hold a picture in your head of your favorite t-shirt. That is imagination, the act of imagining a real thing from the real world, from the primary world. This act is contrasted by Tolkien and medievalists alike with the corrupted form of the word fantasy as fancy. That is the ability to draw forth an image of something unreal, something that does not exist, something not of this world, something from the secondary world. For example, a dragon. Recovery, which includes return and renewal of health, is a regaining of a clearer view. We need, in any case, to clean our windows so that the thing seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity, from possessiveness of all faces of our familiars are the ones both most difficult to play fantastic tricks with and most difficult, really, to seek with fresh attention, perceiving their likeness and unlikeness, that they are faces, and yet unique faces. Recovery implies something that has been lost. We have lost our sense of wonder. What has happened to us as a result of familiarity with a thing is that we cease to experience wonder in their presence. The world itself is an enchanted place, and human experience of the ordinary kind makes us forget that. For Tolkien, our experience in the world is enchanted because it is made by a supreme being, a god. So recovery is recollection that we inhabit a place made by a higher being and all that is created is a reflection of that enchantment. Within fantasy, we have recovery in both senses. We can see the world anew. The familiarities are dispelled, and we become restored. The thing that is restored, I think, is wonder. To learn the world anew. To be enchanted. I have claimed that escape is one of the main functions of a fairy story, and since I do not disapprove of them, it is plain that I do not accept the tone of scorn or pity with which escape is now so often used. 
a tone for which the users of the word outside literary criticism give no warrant at all. In the way the misusers are fond of calling real life, escape is evidently, as a rule, very practical, and may even be heroic. In real life, it is difficult to blame it, unless it fails. In criticism, it would seem to be the worse, the better it succeeds. Evidently, we are all faced by a misuse of words and also by a confusion of thought. Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out or go home? Or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? The world outside has not become less real because the prisoners cannot see it. In using escape in this way, the critics have chosen the wrong word, and, what is more, they are confusing, not always by the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. Token implies that if you can escape from your reality, not only can you recover and come back renewed and healed, then seeing new. To dream of escaping to look beyond the bounds of our moral world, the primary world, is not the flight of the deserter. This is the ideal dream of the prisoner, to escape from reality, if that reality is cruel, destructive, crazy, confusing, or dangerous. To escape that reality would be seen as heroic. To escape from suffering and limitation. If fantasy and fairy stories work effectively, they should give us an opportunity through secondary belief to escape from our limitations and suffering. But the consolation of fairy tales has another aspect than the imaginative satisfaction of ancient desires. Far more important is the consolation of the happy ending. Almost, I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. At least I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function. But the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it catastrophe. The catastrophic tale is the true form of a fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace not to be counted on to reoccur. It does not deny the existence of 
the catastrophe of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And in so far is evangelum, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the Avengers, it can give a child or a man that hears it. When the turn comes, a catch of breath, a beat and lifting of the heart. Near to, or indeed, accompanied by tears. As keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. We read a story which the good end well and the bad end badly. We reach the end of the story with a rush of catharsis and it moves us. We are changed by the journey and all is well and restored. This is the happy ending. Take a closer look at that word, eucatastrophe. This is a very, very famous word within the Tolkien community. The root word astrophe comes from the ancient Greek drama meaning a sudden turn with the prefix eu meaning good in front of it. So we get eucatastrophe, which is the sudden joyous turn of events at the end of a story which ensures that the protagonist does not meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom. Eucatastrophe does not come about by the decisions of the characters or the structures of the plot. It seemingly comes from nowhere. Oftentimes, eucatastrophe will be described as a deus ex machina, god from the machine. When we need the invention of a deity to come help us out of a tight spot, but eucatastrophe works more philosophically and theologically. Eucatastrophe is really about grace. Eucatastrophe is the <sighs> intersection of undeserved, unasked for, and unearning grace. Take a post-it note and put it on your wall, wherever it is you may be listening. Eucatastrophe is not sheer luck, not serendipity, not happenstance. It is not a hidden plot element that we yet have to discover. It is simply divine grace. We will have other opportunities to discuss this as we move into The Hobbit and later into The Lord of the Rings. That brings us to the end 
Avon Fairy Stories. So you guys can join me when we pick up on November 14th with Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, An Unexpected Party. This will probably be a fairly long and in-depth discussion with so much to talk about, so many different ideas, different perspectives, different themes, and different narrative voices. There's a lot to unpack in that chapter. I hope you all are excited. I most certainly am. If you guys want to share your support, you guys can email me at backagainseminar at gmail.com or you can chat with me in my new Discord server. The link will be in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening to this podcast. Home is now behind you. The world is ahead. Until then, thank you. Goodbye.